Glad to have you all here tonight. I'm gonna I'm gonna make uh, I'm gonna tell you what, what's what's going on. I had a I had a long week. I had a real long week. I'm a little bit tired. Um, and at the beginning of this week, as I was starting to study this parable, I I learned something I never learned before. That kind of turned on a light bulb for me, and I obsessed over it all week. And basically, the whole talk hinges on it now. And as I was sitting in here tonight, I began to think like, Is anyone else gonna care but me on this? So there's a decent chance. That uh, something that I'm going to think is so cool in tonight's talk, you're going to be like, yawn, why did you spend our time on that? But just know, that was an amazing music set, so you did not leave here (laughs) empty-handed. We're in uh, Luke uh, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It's going to be somewhere around page 1225 in the Pew Bibles if you want to follow along there. Uh, It's another parable of Jesus, and it uh, says this, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. So this may sound obvious or even a little trite, uh, but I have a sincere conviction that, uh, that Jesus was, was pretty brilliant. And that may be a weird thing to say, like, hey, you're a preacher, you're on his team, of course uh, you think that. But I think I grew up um, being taught to revere Jesus and think about him kind of spiritually and, and as a deity and all those things, which I still believe. But we never actually talked about how incredibly smart he was and, and, and how the depth and the intelligence that went into some of the things he taught. Um, I really think that if today the kind of the sky opened up and the universe somehow convinced me that Jesus was not actually a deity, Jesus was not God or God's son or any of the things that I've based a lot of my belief on, even if that happened, I still think I would study Jesus' teachings. I really do. And I think I would try to implement them in my life because I think they stand even on their own apart from that religious conviction I have, right? To me, there's something deeply true and good and just genius about most of what he teaches. The parts that I can understand, maybe. And today's text, for me this week, became another good example of what seems like absolute brilliance to me. Because again, I learned something new this week on a passage I've studied a lot in my life and I've looked at a lot. And it cast a new light on this parable, which I've studied many times. I'd never noticed it before. And when I first read about someone's take on it, and then I kind of followed up and studied a little bit myself, I fought the idea at first. Um, and then it kind of clicked with me and it made me kind of, made me happy is not the right word. It just turned on some lights, got me excited about the passage. It's just one of those little nuggets that you sometimes can receive when meditating on Jesus' parables in particular, but, you know, scripture in general as well. Turned on a light switch for me. Um, it may not for you, uh, but I'm going to talk about it because I have the microphone and there's nothing you can do. Just kidding. Uh, I thought hopefully, hopefully it helps uh, you too. 
But tonight what I want to do is I want to talk about this parable as I've always talked about this parable, and then I want to add on the thing I've learned and kind of see what kind of new light it might cast on things for you. So we're in Luke 18 again. We have another parable of Jesus. We have another parable that is explained by the writer of Luke before he tells us the parable. This is a parable for the self-righteous. And this is another one that has a bit of humor in it. I think just by virtue of the extremity of the character, how extreme these characters are, Jesus lays out a, a scene that, ex, that puts out these very polar opposites in very kind of magnified ways, right? First, there is the do-gooder. And this is the do-gooder of all do-gooders. He is basically the world's most righteous person. He's a Pharisee, which carried some weight at the time. It means he's dedicated his life to the piety uh, to piety of the highest order. He would have committed immense amounts of time to scripture and to study. He would all be, already be well-respected and admired in the religious community, right? But this guy isn't just a Pharisee. This guy's a super Pharisee, if there is such a thing. He fasts twice a week. You only have to fast once. Doubled up on the fasting. That's how good this guy is. He gives a tenth of all income. Everything that comes in. Anything that comes in towards him, 10%. Hey, here's your... 10-piece chicken bucket from KFC. I will give a leg unto the Lord of this bucket. Everything, right? Nothing gets by this guy. Unbelievably righteous. The most minuscule of things he gives 10% of. He is comically righteous. He's living better than those people around him. And he knows it as much as everyone else does. He's that good. And then there's this other character, his opposite, the tax collector. Hated by other Jews for being a traitor to his faith and to his people. Someone who works for the oppressor and enriches himself on everyone else's misery and hardship. This is the man that every good Jewish mother fears their child may one day become. The most righteous man in the world and the tax collector. This is meant to be almost humorously opposite of each other. These are these extremes. And I'm not sure what the equivalent to these characters would be today. Maybe we could say uh, Mr. Rogers and a Kardashian went down to the church. I don't know. Maybe I could say it's Obama and Trump. And the brilliance of that is I'm not telling you which one's which. So wherever you're at on the political scale, you can, you can, you're, you're making the choice, not me. But these very opposite people, the best and the worst, right? Both come to the same place. And the turn of the story comes when we get to see their hearts and not just what we think we know about them from their exterior. And their interior lives are the opposite of what we would expect. Their hearts don't fit what we all know about them. The most righteous, the one who's supposed to be closest to God is the most arrogant and self-righteous. The one who's supposed to not care about God at all is humbling himself before God, right? This is a humble Kardashian and a jerk, Mr. Rogers. It's a terrible day in the neighborhood. So we get to see their hearts. So now we see them in a different light. And suddenly the good guys and the bad guys are switching places in the story. It's kind of a classic thing that Jesus likes to do, throw you off. And then in verse 14 it says, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. And that's the sermon, right? The sermon becomes, check your own hearts. Who are you today? Are you the self-righteous one? The one who surveys the landscape and thinks, yep, doing great. At least I'm not them. The one who deep down, if they're honest, believes that it is, they deserve better things than, quote-unquote, those people. 
and those people will be different for all of us. Right? We all know this kind of person. We've all been this person. They're the worst, right? Is that you tonight? Or are you the tax collector? Maybe not always doing the right things, maybe messing up a lot, maybe rough around the edges, but deep down, humble and aware of your need for grace, ready to receive the grace that's offered to you. Where is your heart tonight, right? Are you the tax collector or are you the Pharisee? Are you proud or are you humble? Do you want to be the bad guy that gets humbled or the good guy that gets exalted? It's going to be a bit awkward for them, right, as they pass each other going up and down the opposite direction on the ladders. Which person do you want to be? I don't know about you, but I know who I want to be. I want to be the tax collector. I want to be the one moving up the ladder and passing the Pharisee as he's descending. I want to pass him, have him feel awkward, and I want to say, ooh, glad I'm not him. Right? Because this is the story we all love. The arrogant jerk gets humiliated and the bullied kid wins? Come on, who doesn't love that story? Do you know how many times I watched the karate kid when I was young? The really scrawny kid with the brown hair that in the end wins? I loved that story. I wanted to be Tony LaRusso. Or Daniel LaRusso. Daniel. Tony LaRusso was a manager... Uh, Get my baseball, I'm getting my 80s references mixed up there. I didn't want to be Tony LaRussa. He was an old guy who managed a baseball team. I did want to be Daniel LaRussa, who crane kicked the 80s best bully right in the face at the end of the movie. That's who I wanted to be. You want to be the crane kicker, not the crane kicky, right? Which, again, the worst karate move ever invented, but somehow I bought it as a kid, is like indefensible. How could I possibly know what that guy's going to do when there's only one foot he can do something with? You want the crowd cheering for you at the end. And more importantly, you want to watch the bully become the loser. You want to watch them get what's coming to them. Cue, you're the best around song, right? You remember that song from the movie? Am I the only one that geeked that out of that movie? Okay, maybe so. Be humble, not proud. Then you can win. There's a sermon, right? I've preached some version of that sermon before fits really well with what we read there. Now I want to pause and I want to talk to you about a little Greek word that I had never noticed in this story before, even though it's one of the few Greek words I actually remember from seminary. The word is para, P-A-R-A would be the transliteration, para. And what it means is alongside or with, para. The most popular form that you might recognize of that verb is the Greek word parabolos, parable. Balos is a verb in Greek. It means to throw. It's an easy one to remember. You're going to impress your friends. Throw, ball. You throw a ball, right? I got that one right on my test in Greek. Para, alongside, so what, uh, or with. So what a parable is, it's a story that's thrown alongside our lives, a story that's thrown, goes with our lives so we can better understand it, to illuminate the, the lives that we are living, right? alongside or with is parable, as para. In fact, para, that very word, is used a few verses later in Luke 18, verses 27, when it says, uh, when it says, well, who can possibly do that then? And then Jesus replies, what is impossible with man is possible with para, God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. All right. 
Para means with, alongside. Never noticed this before. If you go back to that pivotal verse, verse 14, in the Greek, and you look at the Greek words, uh, I mean, I'll translate it for you, but you, look, you find the word para there as well. It says this, I tell you, this man went down to his own, justified para, the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, in all of our English translations, what it says there is rather than. But the word in Greek is para, with, alongside. Let's reread it with that. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified with the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. I'm not sure why para gets translated as rather than instead of with in this verse. Some modern scholars think it's a mistranslation. That what it should say in English again is this man went down to his home justified with or alongside the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, humble themselves will be exalted. And I and immediately, red flag went up for me, and I said, no, I can't be right. can't be with, right? Because what it says in the next part, it says everyone who exalts themselves is going to be humbled. All who humbles themselves are going to be exalted, right? That can't be right. This is a total reversal. The good guy becomes a bad guy and vice versa, right? Although really, that's not technically what it says. Because then I realized as I began to think about it, okay, if it is, if it is alongside or with, I realize that if you humble the proud and you exalt the humiliated, they don't have to switch places. They can end up in the same place. They don't have to pass each other on the ladder. They can meet in the middle, and the, hum- and the exalted will be humbled, and the humbled will be exalted. They don't have to jump to the other extreme. They don't have to pass each other on the way by each other. What if... One was justified with the other. I thought, well, wait, does that make sense in the rest of Luke? Well, if you look at the rest of Luke and other places in Luke, there's plenty of things that could lend itself towards this, right? Mary's Magnificat, the proclamation of John's, John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus' first sermon, and some of his other parables, right? Each of these talk about things like exalting the lowly, bringing down the powerful, making level the mountains, raising up the valleys, making straight the crooked paths bringing about the year of the Lord's favor, which is the year of Jubilee from the Old Testament in Leviticus. And what the year of Jubilee was, every 50 years, everyone's debts got erased. All the slaves went free. Everyone got leveled out. It was the great etch-a-sketching of the world. Everyone back to where they started. Everyone gets paid the same no matter what time of day they show up. All these kinds of things undo this system of ranking that we put in place, right? Bringing everything level makes for a good little uh, you know, verse or two in the Bible. It makes for a really bad ending to the karate kid. No one wants to watch Daniel or Tony share the trophy with the bully at the end. But isn't that the true nature of grace? I mean, if grace really is grace. Otherwise, this parable really, if you begin to think about it, is not an explanation. It's not, a, it's not an, it doesn't portray grace. It portrays a different measurement than we thought. Well, I thought because this person did all the right things and this person did none of the right things, this one was justified and this wasn't. But it turns out he's proud and he's humble. So really, this one's justified. This, 
It's just a different measuring, but it's the same basic process. Is that really grace? Because grace, if you really take it for what it means, that, that there's nothing I can do to earn it, it is the best and worst news all at once. To say we believe in grace is to say that the same justification is available to everybody. The crooked but humble tax collector, who you'll note didn't even offer like to pay anything back, or he hasn't done anything to repent from the situation, right? He's just been humble in the situation. He hasn't, doesn't, hasn't pulled a Zacchaeus yet. And the good religious man who studiously does everything right, and it's good stuff he's doing, and internally believes the same thing that everyone else does, and is, it is correct. By the standards that they all have, he is doing better than everyone else. Grace just gets rid of the standards altogether. It's easier for us to make one the bad guy and one the good guy and call it a day. It's more satisfying to think about the tax collector saying, I'm glad I'm not him as he passes the descending Pharisee. But doesn't that just make the same mistake all over again? The Pharisee might be like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He may not want to join a party that the tax collector is attending, but he's still invited. I think this little word, para, with, could add another layer of the upsetting genius of Jesus' teaching here. He sets us up to get all excited about our downfall. And in doing so, he tricks us into being the Pharisee all along. If you hate the idea of both being justified, it's for the same reason the Pharisee was glad he wasn't the tax collector to start with. You being upset at the bad guy's justification is an act of self-righteousness. Grace is the hardest and best news. Because everyone in this story still isn't where they should be yet, and neither are we. But God's grace is available to all. Maybe one went justified, went to his home justified with the other. Or maybe I'm wrong. That's a possibility too. But this seemed like a good opportunity to me to reflect on this idea of grace. And I, wanna, I think I want to close by reading something from a book that I've read before, I think once, maybe twice, but I figure if it doesn't happen, maybe every five years it's legal to do again. And it's from a book called uh, Brother to a Dragonfly by Will Campbell. Anyone read this book? One. We're a fan of the back. Fan of Tony LaRusso, too? Are we on the, okay, good. So. <laughs> it's hard being Batman, y'all. It is hard being Batman. So uh, I'm going to warn you ahead of time that there's some, there's some PG language in here. Now it's old school. Like I don't even think it's it's a word that kids today would even know what it is or or to use. Um, but there's a there's a, a not so friendly term for someone whose parents aren't married that is used excessively in this verse. But it points to something that I think is important. And those of you that don't know Will Campbell, he's um, I, I encourage you to look him up, read a little more about him. He's I don't even know how to explain him. He's a he was a a no holds barred uh, Baptist preacher who was on the front line of the civil rights movement. Um, when he didn't have to be, he was uh, known for his, um, uh, he's known for how much he liked whiskey and for not really uh, mincing words about anything, right? 
And this is, this is a story about he and his brother and their kind of the memoir of their life together. But uh, where we're at near the end of the book, um, he's talking about a situation that happened where a friend of his, I mean, I believe his name is uh, Jonathan Daniels, if I wrote that down correctly, uh, was with uh, Ruby Sales. Some of you may know Ruby Sales' name. And they were together, and um, someone pulled a gun for, for a white man and a black woman being together, and he stepped in front of Ruby Sales and was shot and killed. And Ruby was injured. And, uh, and this man who stepped in front and did this amazing kind of act of, uh, of sacrifice for the person next to him uh, was killed by a guy named Thomas Coleman, uh, who was, was racist. And uh, Jonathan, who was killed, was a good friend of Will Campbell's. And so Will finds out the news of what's happened, and it's just yet another thing that's happened in this whole fight that he's been a part of, and he's at the end of his rope, and he's very angry and frustrated. But he recalls a conversation that he had uh, with his friend uh, P.D. East. P.D., the two letters. And P.D. was uh, not a particularly spiritual guy. Even all the things that Will believed in, kind of thought Will talked a little too much about it, to be honest with you. And he was also that friend, and we all have one of these, who never lets anything go. He just always pushed buttons, pushed buttons, pushed buttons. And, and first he tells this little bit about something that happened with he and PD one time before this incident where his friend was killed. Uh, they were having some conversation where uh, they were going back and forth and something he said bothered his friend, uh, PD, and he says, PD looked a little hurt. And that was when he asked me to define Christian faith. But he had a way of pushing for one simple answer. Quote, just tell me what this Jesus cat is all about. I'm not too bright, but maybe I can get a hang of it, he says. The nearest, ever, uh, nearest I ever came, oh, and he said, and he said this, says, keep it simple, 10 words or less. What's the Christian message? We were going someplace or coming back from someplace when he said, let me have it, 10 words. And so I said, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyways. He swung his car off the shoulder and stopped, asking me to say it again. I repeated, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. He didn't comment on what he thought about my summary, except to say, after he had counted the number of words on his fingers, I gave you a 10-word limit. If you want to try again, you have two words left. I didn't try again, but he often reminded me of what I said that day. So then he's sitting in a room with PD later on, when he gets the news of his friend Jonathan being killed. He's been on the phone talking to people about it and complaining about it and, and hurting over it. And then his friend uh, PD says this. Yeah, brother, uh, let me see if your definition of faith can stand the test. Now, my calls had been to the Department of Justice, to the American Civil Liberties Union, and a lawyer friend in Nashville I talked of the death of my friend as being a travesty of justice, a complete breakdown of law and order, a violation of federal and state law. I had used words like redneck and backwoods and woolhat and cracker and cluxer, ignoramus and many other. I've studied sociology and psychology and social ethics, and I was speaking and thinking in those concepts. But I'd also studied the New Testament theology. PD stalked me like a tiger. Come on, brother. Talk about your definition. 
At one point, my brother Joe turned to him, lay off, PD. Can't you see when someone's upset? But PD waved him off, loving me too much to leave me alone. Quote, was Jonathan a bastard? I said I was sure that everyone is a sinner in one way or another, but that he was one of the sweetest and most gentle men I'd ever known. But was he a bastard? His tone was almost a scream. Now that's your word, not mine. You told me one time that everyone is a bastard, and that's a pretty tough word, I know, because I am one. A born bastard, a real one. My mama wasn't married to my daddy. Now, by God, you tell me right now, yes or no, or not maybe, was Jonathan Daniel a bastard? I knew that if I said no, he would leave me alone. And if I said yes, he wouldn't. And I knew my definition would be blown if I said no. So I said yes. All right. Is that Thomas Coleman a bastard? That one was a lot easier. Yes, Thomas Coleman is a bastard. Okay, let me get this straight now. I don't want to misquote you. Jonathan Daniels was a bastard. Thomas Coleman is a bastard, right? Joe, my brother, the protector, was on his feet. Sacrilege, PD, knock it off. Get off the kid's back, but PD ignored him. Pulling his chair closer to mine, placing his huge bony hand on my knee, which one of those two bastards do you think God loved the most? His voice was now almost a whisper as he leaned forward, staring me directly in the eye. I made some feeble attempt to talk about God loving the sinner and not the sin, about judgment and justice and brotherhood and all of humanity, but Petey shook his hand in a matter of cancellation. He didn't want to hear about that. You're trying to complicate it. Now, you're the one who's always told me about how simple it was. Just answer the question. His direct examination would have done credit to Clarence Darrow. He leaned his face closer to mine, patting his own knee first and then mine, holding his other hand aloft in an oath-taking fashion. Which one of these two bastards does God love the most? Does he love that little dead bastard Jonathan the most, or does he love that living bastard Thomas the most? And then Will Campbell says, and suddenly everything became clear. Everything. It was a revelation. That is grace. Trying to come, trying to reconcile within our own minds the idea that both people on either side of that gun that day were the beloved of God. The same forgiveness, the same grace, the same love is available to both. I'm sorry for you hearing that word more than you've ever heard in a church service before, but that passage helped me. I mean, it, it turned lights on for me. It may be weird to say, but even more so than any particular Bible verse came to mind when, when Tony was killed, that's the first thing I thought about. When Tony's mom, the first thing she said was, what about the other boy's mom after her son was killed? That's what I thought about. These are people that understand Grace. It is not easy. It is messy. But what if both went down justified that day? What if grace really is grace? Let's pray.